When you choose Wood McKenzie, you choose a true partner who brings innovation and clarity along with independent business intelligence. Our global solutions provide you the data, research, and analytics that you need to capitalize on the energy transition. We've provided energy intelligence for 50 years and over the last decade significantly scaled our powered renewables capabilities. Yet the energy transition is the biggest change we have ever seen. Market evolutions and technology revolutions have disrupted legacy business models, creating a new energy landscape. Electricity will be the dominant fuel of the 21st century. Navigate the energy markets across policy, regulations, and technology with Wood McKenzie. Speak to us today about how our experts can help you thrive in the fast-changing power industry as we work together to transform the way we power our planet. This is The Interchange Recharged, a Wood McKenzie production. I'm David Bandmiller. A couple of weeks ago, the U.S. House Energy and Commerce Committee passed a bipartisan bill that could have a big impact on the geothermal sector by excluding geothermal development from strict NEPA rules, effectively putting geothermal on the same footing as oil and gas. The bill could cut the red tape and boost production in the sector. Just taking into account the undiscovered geothermal resources in the U.S., which amounts to around 30 to 40 gigawatts. Around 90% of that 30 gigawatts of undiscovered conventional geothermal are located on federal lands. And the permitting timelines for geothermal development on federal lands really do inhibit access to about half of that resource. If we were able to improve permitting and cut development timelines in half, that would allow close to 9 gigawatts of geothermal power production deployment by 2030. Clean, 24-7 energy sounds pretty good. But how can we unlock its potential, and most importantly, get costs down? New geothermal technology, which uses horizontal drilling to drill multiple wells into a geothermal reservoir from a single location, is a promising start. But more innovation is needed to become cost competitive. So how do we do it? Dr. Joseph Moore is research professor at the University of Utah and managing principal investigator at Utah Forge, a geothermal research facility managed by the Energy and Geoscience Institute at the University of Utah and sponsored by the DOE. Dr. Moore, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Pleased to be here. So I definitely want to talk about the Utah Forge project a little bit later in the show. But first, I'd really like to get your thoughts on the news from the House Committee on Energy and Commerce. You know, how important is this proposed legislation to the 2005 Energy Policy Act? And historically, has legislation been the main blocker for geothermal? That's an interesting question. There are really two aspects of geothermal at this point. We're on the research side. Our goal is to de-risk technologies and build the geothermal industry. On the other side, of course, probably the more important side for many is commercial development. And anything we can do to speed up leasing is absolutely critical. Typically takes five to seven years to bring a project online. And that's much too long a period of time to bring commercials online. So this will help. I don't think it's the only thing we need. Right now we need, beside leasing, we need more production tax credits. We need ways to make geothermal more cost effective, at least from the electric point of view. And that also includes transmission lines. So there's a host of issues, I think, both practical issues and legislative issues that have to be dealt with from the commercial perspective. It's 
pretty significant to see the implications from an analysis perspective on of permitting, streamlining of permitting for geothermal development. It's an issue that we hear from industry frequently. Um, and the idea of categorical exclusions for early stage drilling uh, are, are part of that. So I think that the analyses that we've done and what we hear from our community um, and understand, you know, from our partners in the Department of Interior, these categorical exclusions are, are a very important tool in enabling widespread oil and gas exploration and a geothermal specific exclusion, which would be consistent with those that are established for oil and gas. Um, they were established in the Energy Policy Act of 2005 um, and have been proposed numerous times on the Hill. It would allow us to really accelerate the permitting timelines um, and further unlock that deployment that I spoke about um, earlier. And this is, you know, generally thought of as um, categorical exclusions for early stage exploration. Um, that's where what, what sort of the discussion is centering around from the perspective of, of these CXs. So the five to seven years that it takes for projects to come online, what contributes to that timeline? What's kind of the biggest factor? First, we have to demonstrate that there is a resource. So once we can get a lease, and the lease in many states has been a long time in coming, and that's where NEPA rules, if we could streamline them, will be extremely helpful. And a lot of this is simply environmental regulations that have to be dealt with. Endangered fauna, flora are particularly important. Some states have learned how to do this. Other states are quite slow in their permitting process. And then once that happens, wells have to be drilled, the exploration wells, to demonstrate there is a resource. Power purchase agreements have to be signed for uh, further development. Funding has to be obtained. We have to go through a series of NEPA requirements as we move through the process from initial exploration, geophysical studies, to initial wells, exploration wells, and permitting for development wells, and then the power plant and the infrastructure. That all takes a considerable amount of time. And how do you determine whether there is a resource? Because my understanding with geothermal is, I mean, just depending on the depth and the heat at that depth, it could encompass 95% of the globe. Is it just with current technology, how far at a depth that is? Actually, no. We're really, in many ways, at the stage of the oil and gas industry in the early 1900s. They located uh, oil and gas reservoirs where there are oil seeps coming out of the ground. And in fact, if we look at geothermal worldwide from electric point of view, all of the geothermal electricity that is being produced is associated with hot springs and typically with volcanoes. There may not be an active hot spring in some places, but we can usually find evidence that there was a hot spring there. So we see physical manifestation of hot water coming to the surface. Now, the hot water itself can't be above boiling at the surface, but that doesn't mean that the water at depth is 100 degrees. In fact, it's much like a pressure cooker. Temperature at depth, because the pressure is higher, will be hotter. So currently, the world's geothermal system is about 16,000 megawatts. We think one megawatt per thousand homes is worldwide production. But where you're going is very different. We know that if we drill deep enough, we will find temperatures hot enough. Typically for electric production, we're looking at temperatures of, say, 400 degrees at a minimum to 600 650, somewhere at that range. 
And we know we can find those temperatures at depth anywhere in the world. And we basically know how fast temperatures increase. So we know if we drill, say, four kilometers, we're going to find temperatures that are looking to be electric. The issue with these um, resources, and maybe I can just flip into this idea of forge because it provides a good example. So FORGE is the frontier observatory for research in geothermal energy. And the idea here is to create a geothermal reservoir where none exists naturally. And we think about a geothermal reservoir, it's really very different than an oil and gas reservoir. Oil and gas reservoir, we think of maybe a beach sand, lots of holes between the sand grains, lots of porosity, some good permeability. That's not what we think of when we're looking at these hot resources. They basically do not have the permeability that is required. So I want you to think here of a tombstone made out of granite or your granite kitchen table. That's what the reservoir looks like. Now hit it with a hammer and you have a crack in it. That is the reservoir. It may be one crack that is carrying fluid over many meters. Typically, I think maybe 10% of the total rock has cracks in it that can carry fluid. So this reservoir is not the same as an oil and gas reservoir. If we don't have sufficient number of cracks, then we won't have the amount of water we need circulating through. And conceptually, it's very simple. We have cold water. It's dense. It sinks down faults. That water, as it heats up, then becomes buoyant and rises to the surface. You get a hot spring. But in most places in the world, we don't have the cracks that we need to allow this circulation to occur. So basically, you put a pot on the stove, stove heats the water at the bottom, circulates up, it cools, and it drains back down in your pot. So you develop a circulation cell. That's what the goal of this forge is really to develop the technologies and techniques that are required to build reservoirs anywhere. So once we can build a geothermal reservoir wherever we need it, we can mitigate many of the environmental issues, right? We don't have to put it in the middle of an area where there are major environmental issues. Transmission lines are a huge issue in moving electricity. So basically, Geothermal companies either have to build their own transmission lines or they have to hook into one. Very, very expensive. And so if we can build these reservoirs where we need them, then we don't have to build hundreds to thousands of miles of transmission lines. We can effectively build these reservoirs in parking lots. We can build them where we need them. So what are you doing to create the cracks in the rock down at that depth where there's not a naturally occurring reservoir? So we use techniques that are similar to the oil and gas technologies. So we'll use water and we'll pump water into the well and that water will effectively open existing cracks. You can imagine that if you take granite and it's hot granite and we're looking at temperatures at 450 degrees. And so we know we have the hot rock. In order to create them, we pump water into the ground and the idea is to open existing fractures. There are many, many fractures subsurface, but the issue is they're not connected to each other. And that's the goal. In order to develop these convection cells, these circulation cells, we need to be able to pump water in. As it moves through the rock, it needs to heat up. 
and then we produce it out of a production well. So this requirement is we develop these connected fractures. We develop a radiator in the ground where water can move through. Some of your listeners will say, you're fracking. That's what the oil and gas industry does. You're doing the same thing. We are using oil and gas technologies, but there's really one very, very significant difference. Oil and gas produces oil, gas, and water. Oil and gas developers or companies don't use the water. The water is a byproduct that is unwanted, and you really can't put it back in the ground because it's a waste product in the oil and gas industry. And so that water has to be taken to permitted injection sites where the water is injected into the ground. And what we see is kind of a sponge effect. You can fill the sponge only so far, and eventually you will cause some earthquakes. And I'm not making a judgment of whether that's what we should be doing or not. I think we should be injecting into injection sites. And we do see seismic events occurring as a result of that where they hadn't before. In the geothermal industry, both in commercial development, typical hydrothermal development that we have around the world, and in this EGS environment, this enhanced geothermal environment, the water is reused. It must be re-injected into the reservoir from where it came from. And I mean, that's one of the reasons I'm a fan of geothermal is one, you've got the renewable and clean nature of it, but I think it also utilizes existing technology really on the drilling side. So you've got existing technology from the oil and gas drillers, but then you have job transferability into green energy projects with that. And I know that there's technologies being developed right now with Quays Energy looking at going at really deep depths to get to that heat required, utilizing existing drilling technology, but then taking it deeper to be able to find that heat. So I assume with going down at these deeper depths that have the heat, then utilizing the technology that you're developing at Forge to create these systems really then opens up across the globe opportunities in various locations for geothermal energy. In terms of the way that we bucket the you know technologies or the resources that we are at the Department of Energy looking to help advance Uh, I've referred to this idea of conventional hydrothermal systems before. That's where we have heat permeability and fluid in the subsurface. And in general, we're basically letting nature do its thing. We're we're pulling fluid that that exists, or in some cases, the fluid is already coming to the surface uh, to turn a turbine and produce power. Uh, The difference between conventional geothermal and enhanced geothermal systems is that um, we're taking advantage of basically stranded heat that exists anywhere in the subsurface uh, where we might not have either adequate uh, fluid flow or we might not have adequate permeability to allow fluid to be flowing through the subsurface to pick up that heat. And so these human-made reservoirs um, are being created by drilling wells, by injecting water to create permeability, and then that new reservoir basically has those three principal elements that are naturally occurring. Uh, the fluid is now there, can pick up that stranded heat, can be circulated continuously and used for electricity production or for direct use, which is basically where you're taking the heat out of a fluid and utilizing it for um, for heating and cooling or for other other processes like you know drying onions or for direct use purposes in greenhouses, uh, keeping keeping water warm to um, to farm fish, things of that nature. Similar to EGS, which is a concept that originated. In the 70s, as hot dry rock and has, has really changed dramatically over the course of that 
uh, time between then and now. Uh, another technology for utilizing the stranded heat in the subsurface um, that's also been around for a while is now under uh, under development by a number of commercial operators. And it generally falls into a bucket called advanced geothermal, but it has quite a few different um, technologies in, included in it, one of which an end member is this concept of closed loop geothermal systems, meaning that well bores are drilled and connect um, in the subsurface. In general, all of the technologies that I have mentioned, hydrothermal systems, enhanced geothermal systems, advanced geothermal systems, um, and heating and cooling require drilling. And they're two different depths for, for heating and cooling. We're talking much shallower for direct use, slightly you know, deeper. For power production, it can vary dramatically across the U.S. and completely depends on you know where your resources might be, whether they're fluid heat and permeability or whether it's just heat. But drilling technology is, is critical to advancing geothermal across the board. And obviously, the deeper we go, the hotter it's going to be. And people talk about supercritical systems. And that's just the critical point of water, where the vapor and the liquid have the same properties. But what's really important is that's 750 degrees Fahrenheit. So if we can reach those kinds of temperatures, yeah, the energy is just tremendous. I want to give you an example of how much energy is actually stored in the U.S. if we start to think about that. And Jeff Tester and his colleagues, he was at MIT in 2006, and he and his colleagues got together and they re-looked at this idea of enhanced geothermal systems, building these reservoirs. The first attempt had been in 1970s at Fenton Hill, Los Alamos, and Jeff was involved in that. And it didn't work. Basically, we learned it. It was a gold standard, but we didn't connect wells with any kind of flow rates that were commercial. And there have been a number of projects through the years. And, you know, these projects have been important learnings, but they haven't led to truly commercial systems. But if we look at how much heat is available and we look at, uh, say, four to six miles, we can drill the four or six miles now typical oil and gas wells can get there. And we look at, at the energy that's stored in that depth range, it turns out if we could extract 2% of the energy between about four and six miles, that would be more than 2,000 times the energy the U.S. uses annually. So it's inexhaustible. But we're not going to get to these 750 degree temperatures until we can build the tools that get us at 450 degrees. And so we absolutely need these test laboratories where we can try it. And we have tried several different types of drilling technologies. We've used what's called uh, mud hammers. We've used what's called particle drilling, where you shoot little BBs out of the bit. And Forge is really the only place that I'm aware of where somebody could come in and test these new technologies and not worry about the liability of it. What are some of the technologies that you've been testing that show the most promise? So the bit design has been absolutely critical. And what's especially important about it is this has been commercial companies that have come in, they've 
followed our progress, they've looked at the bits and how they behave, and they've gone home and a week later come back with a slightly different design. That improves it. And this has already been transferred to the oil and gas and geothermal industries. Obviously, a geothermal industry, if they could figure out how to drill faster, they're going to take on this use. And these bits had never been used in geothermal. So that's been very important. Oil and gas technologies in terms of packers and plugs, when we do this fracturing, of the rocks. We use corks. They're called packers and plugs. And those corks are not made for the high temperatures in granite. So we've been developing new corks. We've been funding Colorado School of Mines for what's called a tractor and a sliding sleeve. This is a really interesting combination. So we're going to drill the well, and then sometimes we'll hit some very high permeability zones. Or alternatively, we want to fracture many zones as we move down the well. We'll actually start from the bottom up, but we want to fracture many zones. We know that the hottest zone will be at the bottom. Temperatures increase as we go down. So we will want the water that we pump into this granite reservoir to go into the deepest sections. What we can do then is build a Venetian blind that we can open and close. And so we can close off zones that we don't want fluid going into. And so one of the projects is to develop this sliding sleeve or this Venetian blind and a tractor, a tool that can ride down the well and open and close these tools. And that has to work at 450 degrees. And there is none. You can't go out and buy one. So we've been working with companies to develop those. And that's a major advance in it. We're looking at how to case. We were the first group to drill a highly deviated well. People talk about horizontal wells all the time. And what that means is you go vertically and then make a right angle. Geothermal, although has been very active in the renewable scene, say, since the 60s, that's when the first large fields started to be developed around the world, never did more than a basic drill it with maybe a 30 degree. So almost vertical. We went to 65 degree bent, and now private companies are going to 90. But that had never been done in geothermal. We've learned how to perforate and open up cracks at these very high angles. Never been done in geothermal. Working on conveyances. How do you get tools down those wells? You can't drop them down. They don't go to the bottom of these wells by themselves, by gravity. So we're working on these tools, the high temperatures. And we need these new tools because the electronics don't work. It's not so much that we can't figure out what the tool would look like. The electronics that you have to build in is very expensive to design, to build, and to make work. It will stand the heat. Yeah, they don't withstand the heat. And that's been a fundamental design flaw in these tools for many, many years. In fact, some of these tools, we have to put liquid nitrogen just to cool them so we can get them down. And so this is the kind of test we're doing. You know, one of the things that we've talked a little about, and it's becoming much more prevalent as we look at the energy transition and testing these new technologies, is the use of AI to accelerate some of the results of the testing. Have you guys factored that in at all? Or are you guys looking at it? Yes. So our project is $220 million project, and that's between about 2018 and 2025. So it's a very large project. But the point is 50% of the total budget goes to R&D. And this is R&D, not by the FORGE team itself, not the field operations per se, but to 
other organizations, and this is national laboratories, universities, private companies, groups that are really at the cutting edge. And AI in the last group, there'll be, be about 13 of these that will be awarded from the last solicitation. About 17 were already awarded. And in the newest solicitation, AI is becoming very, very important. How do you manage the drilling is one. And so when we're on the drilling floor, we need to understand the rate of penetration. How much weight do we put on the bit? How do we optimize drilling rates? And so AI can play a big role there. How do we monitor seismicity during it? We have monitored it we have a, a plant called a traffic light plant at Forge that we prepared. You know, I'd like to say that when we did our last stimulation, and it was a commercial size stimulation, we had over 50,000 seismic events. None was sensible. That means you could stand there and you couldn't feel them. But we could monitor them with very, very sensitive instruments basically at reservoir depth. And that's an area where we need to use AI to be able to monitor this continuously. This is important because I need to know how the reservoir is growing. That's absolutely critical. Where is it growing to? How big is it growing? How fast is it growing? How high is it growing? And the only way I can do this is through very, very sensitive seismic instruments. Yeah, you actually bring up another point that I wanted to ask you about as it relates to geothermal and, and a couple of the concerns or comments around it, just from an environmental standpoint, were the potential for greenhouse gas emissions, obviously coming from under the surface, as well as the surface instability. So I wanted to get your thoughts on that. I mean, you obviously addressed a little bit of the, the surface instability there, but your overall kind of counter to those concerns or what you're doing to alleviate them. Let's start with the question of greenhouse gases. The hottest systems have typically used uh, flash plants, turbines. These are very similar to any other kind of power plant that's developed, gas-fired, coal-fired power plants. They all work in a very similar way. Geothermal waters themselves have very little gases. We're dealing with rocks that have been heated in the past. They're not your oil and gas reservoir. So they virtually have no methane, benzene. They have no hydrocarbons themselves. And they have very, very small amounts of CO2. And so some of that in the past was released. The new power plants, every power plant built in the U.S. today is a closed-loop power plant. It's called an organic Rankine cycle. And what it does is we take water out of the ground. The hot water passes through a heat exchanger and goes back in the ground. So that hot water never sees the atmosphere and it never boils. That hot water heats an organic fluid, R134, what you put in your car, what's in your refrigerator. And that organic fluid then vaporizes, goes through a turbine, is condensed on the backside of the turbine to create a vacuum and sucks more organic fluid through this loop. So that's a closed loop, never sees atmosphere. So these organic Rankine cycle systems have no releases of any gas at all. Everything that is produced goes back in the ground. There is no release of gases, hydrocarbon, and the rocks don't have any to begin with. You mentioned the R&D and the significant costs associated with it. So there's going to be high costs as technologies develop to find the optimal solution. But how do you foresee costs being able to come down for geothermal and really drive further adoption across the U.S. and the globe? 
Currently, the costs uh, of geothermal are, are improving steadily. Um, I would say that there is a 3.7 plus gigawatts of geothermal on the grid already that is extremely cost effective um, and very competitive as hydrothermal resources that have been developed. And new power purchase agreements that have been signed in the last year or so are on the order of $70 per megawatt or, or greater. Uh, the Department of Energy is put out an enhanced geothermal systems earthshot, which is basically an all-of-government effort to reduce the costs of enhanced geothermal systems and, and geothermal in general. And we're we're aiming towards, by 2035, a $45 per megawatt cost for enhanced geothermal systems. I think it was September of 23, Secretary Granholm announced Earthshot 4, which was a very significant announcement from the Department of Energy. And what she asked or what she set as an objective was to go from 3,700 megawatts today. The U.S. currently produces entirely through standard conventional geothermal systems, a hot spring systems, 3,700 megawatts. She set an objective of 90,000 megawatts by 2050. So to go from 3,700 which we have today, to 90,000 is not simple. It can't be done by producing or developing conventional systems or by developing hot spring systems. But recognizing that the currently geothermal power is not really valued appropriately considering what it can provide to, uh, to grid operators, this ability for firm flexible power is, is just so critically important and that's not necessarily incorporated and considered in the in the um, in the valuation of of geothermal. Although I will say we're starting to see more of that. With respect to what we're doing to get the costs down, drilling costs account for around fifty percent of the development of geothermal projects from power perspective. And uh, our office, the Geothermal Technologies Office, is is really focusing on improving drilling technologies, drilling speeds, drilling efficiency. We have a number of efforts underway, not only the work that's happening at Forge, but under our hydrothermal program, we have an entire initiative that's focused on drilling improvements and improving efficiency by over 25% and two very exciting new projects that are underway already. They were just announced last year, run by, by Oxy and one run by the Geysers Power Company out in um, in California in collaboration with a number of academic institutions and national labs. The OXY project is taking place in the Denver Jules Basin um, in Colorado and also has a number of collaborative partners in the academic institutions and labs and really exciting opportunity to advance drilling technologies um, and efficiencies. So a big portion of our program is focused on that and has historically been focused on trying to improve drilling. And building on those advances at Forge, it's a pretty exciting time, I think. The point is here that the only way we're going to get that cost reduction is to duplicate what we're doing. So we need to replicate the EGS system, build more of them. The more that we do, obviously, the better we're going to get at it, the faster we're going to drill, the lower the costs are going to be. So really, the only way 
that I see is to reduce drilling costs by drilling multiple wells, multiple fields. And this really has to come from funding from the Department of Energy, both through concepts like FORGE, where they pay groups like us or they fund groups like us to be able to do this, but it also has to come from a demonstration project where DOE gets invested in commercial outfits building geothermal reservoirs. I think that's critical. We need to incentivize the industry to be able to build these tools, again, through R&D, but, but I think also through some of the work we're doing, like get the industry out there, have them see what these issues are, and have them turn their attention to building the tools that are needed, just like the drilling company did that built the bits. They saw this as a profit. They were going to make money at it. They didn't do it for me, for one well, but they saw a real profit. And in fact, that has come to pass. We need to establish collaborative programs with the oil and gas industry. They are good at subsurface drilling and at working with the subsurface. That's all they do, or at least that's a half of what they do, is their underground activities. They know a lot about drilling. In fact, a lot of the workforce is going to come from the oil and gas industry as we transition the cost. They know how to do this and they can do it cheap. And they've learned how to do it cheap because they've done it over and over again in the same fields. So they can drill these wells no time flat. But we are developing collaborations with the major oil companies of the world. And several of them are looking actively at enhanced geothermal systems and putting in bids. I think uh, there's a company in Denver Basin right now that will be drilling very deep wells with DOE funding. It's an oil and gas company. And so we're working with them. We need to conduct workshops. We need to show the oil and gas industry and the geothermal industry how to make improvements. And I think that will help. So I think those are the main reasons. And of course, from the practical point of view, anything we do to mitigate leasing issues is absolutely essential from the commercial perspective. So again, that goes back to NEPA and making it easier to work in place. Like Utah. You know, Utah has three power plants, a third in a nation, but there really isn't an organization within the state that's fully mandated to do geothermal regulatory work. We work through water resources. Yeah, and I, I definitely like the point about the collaboration with the oil and gas industry in this effort, because I definitely think utilizing the expertise from both areas is going to be critical in this. But Dr. Moore, I, I really do appreciate you coming on the show. Interesting discussion. And I really look forward to seeing the progress from the Ford project. Thank you very much for hosting this podcast. I appreciate that. The Interchange is a Wood McKenzie production. We'll be releasing the show every second Tuesday with our next episode out on February 13th. So mark your diaries and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. I'm David Bammiller. It's been a pleasure joining you. See you next time.